This is J.G. Hertz, the General Mar Talker on Deep Space Nine, and you're listening to Trek FM. Hello and welcome to Season 6, Episode 11 of Commentary, Trek Stars, a show which deals with the work of Star Trek creators outside of Star Trek. I'm Mike. I'm John. And today is Part 3 in our series on Maurice Hurley, looking primarily at the movies which he wrote. Now, we should make note uh, that he did write a movie about 10 years, or 15, 20, I don't know, a long time before... Uh, the proposal, and that was a movie called Firebrand 2015. And while that movie sounds awesome, it, it is does. pretty much not available anywhere. So <laughs> we'd have to set up a separate uh, Patreon for it. Exactly. If we wanted to buy it. Yeah. Right. We could buy the VHS tape for like 350 <laughs> bucks, and then we have, have, have to buy a VCR. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> so. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, uh, unfortunately we can't cover that movie, but we can cover the last movie that he wrote, which is William Shatner's Groom Lake. Yeah. Now, the big plan was, see, because, I mean, we weren't sure about how good Groom Lake would be, and we weren't sure whether we both wanted to own it. And it's only available on DVD. So what we did is what we've done in the past, which is, you know, one of us purchased it. Yes. And then the plan was to watch it and send it to the other person, right? Yeah, that's always the plan. Yeah. Right. Now, I kind of dropped the ball because I watched it a little bit later and then I had trouble getting to the post office because of work and post office hours being what they are. And... It was supposed to arrive on Saturday, and it didn't. didn't arrive until today. So you haven't had a chance to finish this, right? I have not. I have not. And it was uh, doubly frustrating that it didn't show up till today, considering the post office delivered something on a Sunday. And Uh. I was like, guys, can't you just loop? Come on, put it together. Come on, man. Oh, well, you know, but we have have a, a backup plan, you know. We were like, well, Maurice Hurley, you know, he did a lot of TV. That was sort of his bread and butter. That's probably what he is uh, best known for and also sort of best representative of his work. The reason why we chose movies was because it was manageable and also because we thought, well, there's a certain, um, I don't know, myopic vision in a movie. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The writer in the movie is going to have more of a hand in the final product than somebody who's working on the TV show. TV shows are, by their very nature, done by committee. Right. He created one show called uh, Point Man, I think, which is uh, a movie or a show which which seemed interesting, but again, is not available. And another one which is not very readily available that he was an executive producer on was Baywatch Nights, I believe. Which was the Baywatch show that didn't last a long time. Yeah, he also was a like a, a high up on the writing staff for Baywatch Prime. But <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I mean, I don't know. Like I would have loved to have uh looked at Baywatch Nights because that's a show which has 
captured my imagination ever since <laughs> I heard about it. Not enough to actually, you know, bother watching it ever. <laughs> right. But the idea of its existence, I think, is really cool, especially when, like, Max started describing, like, what it was where, you know, the idea was like, okay, he, David Hasselhoff is a lifeguard by day, but then at night he becomes a private detective, right? Or is it just a straight-up cop? Uh, no, I'm pretty sure it's private detective. Okay. And, it, you know, because the two career paths are often intertwined. Yeah. And so why choose one or the other when you can be both? I just love the idea. I mean, the, I mean, I really do love the idea that, first off, it's like, okay, what's the draw of Baywatch? Now, I, I never really watched Baywatch because, honestly, even as a teenage boy, I had no interest in it whatsoever, which yeah. is really strange when you think about it. Not, not really. <laughs> Nobody really watched Baywatch. It really was. I, I think that people, people watched Baywatch f- for a brief time every week. And okay. Then maybe not, maybe not a whole the full episode. hour. Yeah, probably not the whole hour. Yeah, but I mean, like, I mean, like, I just went into Target the other day, and you can get like Baywatch shirts now. I didn't buy a Baywatch oh. shirt. I bought a Saved by the Bell shirt because it was oh. on clearance. Let, and let I me was write. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know which seal got broken, but I'm going to go look that up later because uh, <laughs> that's definitely a sign of something bad happening. Yeah, but you know. Regardless of that, um, because of that, you know, I never really had an interest in Baywatch. But as I understand it, the main appeal of Baywatch may not necessarily be David Hasselhoff, even though he is the star, so much as, um, you know, Pamela Anderson and Donna D'Erico and all of those people. Erico Laniac. There you go. Who who, who, actually was in a movie with Steven Seagal. Yeah. um, uh, The Under Siege. Yes. Yeah. The good one of those two. She was also in E.T. What, seriously? Yeah, she's the little girl who kisses uh, Elliot. Oh, no kidding. I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah. Ah. So, anyway. Huh. <laughs> um, but she never did Star Trek, so I guess, you know, another reason why we didn't do Baywatch. But the yeah. idea that, that there's, like, a, a show where they're like, we're going to do a spinoff, but we're going to take the main character and... He's going to be in both shows. He's going to be starring in two shows simultaneously. Yeah. Playing the same character. And we're going to have like two storylines, even though these things are going to be like taking place. Then again, I guess if he's actually able to do both shows, that means he is actually able to manage his time as a person. So the idea of the character being able to manage his time that way is not that big of a stretch. But I like the idea that they changed the genre and everything. Yeah. And then yeah. I hear when it failed in season two in an attempt to like revitalize it, they like brought in aliens and stuff. I don't remember that part, but <laughs> now I'm now I'm mildly interested in seeing Baywatch Nights. This is what I've been told. I don't know whether or not that's true, but I'm going to believe it is. I'm not going to look it up to see whether or not it is, because the, the only thing that could happen is me being disappointed. Yeah, well, David Hasselhoff does not disappoint. No. He's really, I mean, honestly, the spiritual uh, nephew of William Shatner, if you think about it. I can see that. I can yeah. see that. So Baywatch Nights was kind of off the table. Point Man was off the table. But there were some kind of like high-profile shows which he worked on, and one of them was Miami Vice, yeah. which is available on Netflix. So, so you know, thinking on the fly... 
what we thought might be a good idea would be since I saw Groom Lake and you weren't going to have a chance to watch Groom Lake, maybe you could take a look at some of his work on Miami Vice. And since these two movies that, you know, we were trying to, um, you know, uh, look at as a representation of his, his work on the whole kind of fell through them both being sort of duds, maybe yeah. it would be a good idea to look at something that was representative of his work in terms of quality yeah. and style and all that stuff. So that's what we're going to do. First, we're going to take a look at Groom Lake, and then we're going to take a look at uh, Miami Vice today. So, yeah. So Groom Lake. Okay. You say you saw the the first uh, like half hour of this? Yeah, I saw I saw thirty minutes of this uh, cinematic thing. Right, I saw the whole thing. Uh, this is a movie which I've been wanting to see for a long time because it was directed by William Shatner, and we all know how good he is. We both yeah. like Star Trek Five quite a bit, yep. and we both, um, well. I mean, I, I think just in general, you know, like everything that he's done, you know, like his documentaries and stuff like that. We talked about Chaos on the Bridge yeah. uh, last week and how awesome that was. So, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm going to want to see what William Shatner does as a director. And uh, I saw I saw what he did as a director. Um, <laughs> okay, so this is a movie. Um, okay. Where do I start? <laughs> Amy Acker is in this. Yes. And she is a woman who is dying of lupus. Yes. Um, apparently she fits into house continuity, or maybe she doesn't, because it always could be lupus, but it never is, right? Right. Yeah. Right. So I guess she, it doesn't fit into house continuity, but she's got lupus and she's dying. And her and her boyfriend or fiance or whoever decide that they're going to take like one last trip, and they're in, um, uh, I guess Nevada is that where it is by Area sure. Fifty One, right? It's some somewhere with a desert in it, right? And it, I think it's by Area Fifty One. That's the idea, right? I, I think you're supposed to presume so. Yeah. I mean, Groom Lake is a real place, right? I don't know. I think I, it is. I honestly have no idea. I'm pretty sure it is. I, um, I You're think that's right. it's it's known for having like a bunch of uh UFO sightings and all that stuff. And um they're going up there just kind of, you know, on their on their trip or whatever. Yeah, it is where Area 51 yeah. is. Yeah, it's a salt flat. Yep. Yeah. And they're like, "Oh, hey, look, there's a nice mountain. You know, let's go up there." And um they have a close encounter and this is sort of a town which is known, like the townsfolk sort of have legends and there are some people who kind of appear crazy but in actuality have also had close encounters and it has changed them and all that stuff that you see in every alien abduction movie, you know? Yes. Tom Tom Tolles plays a, uh, a, a local. Um, I'm a big fan of Tom Tolles. Uh, he's a Chicago guy who's been in a lot of uh, John McNaughton movies like Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer and um, Normal Life and, and, and these things. So it was fun seeing him. Yeah. Although, the, and then William Shatner's in it. And Dick Van Patten. Dick Van Patten, Yes, right? Dick Van, that was, yes, Dick, yeah, okay, yes. He, he was, I did get to see him in the 30 minutes that I saw, and it was... Uh, it was interesting seeing Dick Van Patten 
as this harried scientist yes. uh, trying to make uh, William Shatner's dreams come true. <laughs> and, and, you know, William Shatner is a military guy, right? Yeah, Who, Air Force, I think, because he's wearing a bomber jacket and a nondescript movie uh, uniform. Right, and he's sort of, like, got this whole thing going where he's, you know, there's, like, you know, an alien thing that he's trying to test out, and there's, like, a suit, and there's a whole thing where, like, the aliens are, like, gaseous, but they can inhabit the suit or something. Honestly, I'm not entirely sure what was going on. Based on the 30 minutes I saw, I don't think anybody was entirely sure of what was going on. (laughs) So all of this is happening. You got Amy Acker dying. You got Tom Tolles trying to convince everyone else that aliens exist. You've got um, William Shatner trying to like connect with the aliens and do this alien thing while the government and his agencies are trying to shut him down. All of this is going on, um, and none of it really makes a lot of sense, and no one really cares about any of it. But to top it all off. Um, the style of this movie is rather interesting. Yeah, that's a word. <laughs> I mean, what what did you think about uh, what you saw of the style? Because, well, I mean, I think that you really do get a sense of it in that first scene. Yeah, I would say that uh, in, in that first scene, in the, in the opening credits sequence, and then the, the first scene, um, I... It is, if I happened across this, if I didn't know that William Shatner directed it, or, you know, if I was scanning, we talked about last week with the proposal, how you would be scanning, you you might see it and get frustrated from a certain point of view uh, if you saw it late at night. If I saw this at any time of day and I'm scanning around, if I saw 30 seconds of this, I wouldn't have stopped. It looks like something that somebody grabbed a handheld camcorder, digital camcorder, ran out to the desert with a bunch of their friends and said, hey, come on, let's make a movie. That's basically what it looks like. Yeah, it really does feel like the movies that like I made with my friends when I was in high school and college. Yes. You know? And yes. even like the performances, even though they've got, you know, top-notch actors in there, they're just not not on par with where they should be, you know? I, I yeah, I, I really think that they did this just as a laugh. I really do. I I don't really see... I mean, because Shatner has a really good sense of humor, right? Yeah. I don't think that he was trying to be funny here. I think that he was trying to make something serious, something personal. I think he really wanted to tell this story. And I think it did not work at all. Yeah, I agree. And Just I mean, based on what I saw. P- part of it, I think, had to do with the, um, the budget. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it definitely seemed like there was none. Right. I mean, yeah. like, the, 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 one of the things that kind of signaled to me that this was in trouble, you know, I mean, like, I saw the sort of, like, handheld video quality that you were talking about, and I'm like, you know what? I can forgive that because, you know, certainly that was kind of like the era where, where that was almost acceptable, and there were... A lot of crazy people trying out crazy things. Richard Linklater was shooting movies like that at the time. It was like this very strange little window of time where all of a sudden people were like, 
video is cheap enough that we can actually do something crazy and cool that we normally wouldn't be able to do because we couldn't afford to film it. And yet the quality is not good enough to actually put on the big screen. I mean, the video quality very quickly caught up with it. And now, you know, what you can shoot on your phone looks better than what they were shooting there. But it was a weird time period that only lasted for like five years. But there were some people who did some crazy stuff with it, like Richard Linklater and, and Steven Soderbergh. So, you know, I'm willing to give William Shatner the benefit of the doubt on that. But there were other things about it which just signaled amateur hour. Like the, the, the one moment that really sort of put it over the top for me is when Tom Tolles is like looking at like aliens doing something and he starts shouting at them. And the like ADR, you know, yes. dialogue replacement that they use was the worst I've <laughs> ever seen, you know? And I'm like, boy, they're not even trying. They're just literally not even trying because I could do yeah. a better job than that with the equipment that I have at home, you know? Yeah. So that was that was kind of when I checked out. That and the whole, like, because I couldn't tell, like, they're driving. Amy Acker and her boyfriend are driving. Oh, yes. And then yeah. all of a sudden she kind of dozes <laughs> off and it gets into this weird, trippy, dreamy <laughs> sequence where, like, in a white room, like a guy in a white suit is like, uh-huh. you have lupus, you have, you know, and, and it almost looks like something out of like THX 1138 or, <laughs> or beneath the planet of the apes or something like that. Yeah. And I'm like, is this a vision that she's having because she's like connected to the aliens or is this supposed to be, this is just supposed to be a flashback? Right. What? So why is it double exposed over the, the, the scenery whipping by while she's looking out the window? Why not actually cut to an actual scene in a room with people talking? Or why not just say, like, oh, it sucks that I have lupus and I'm going <laughs> to die soon, you know? <laughs> you know, see, right there, that's an even simpler and more elegant solution. And they would have saved money. Yeah, yeah. So, you know... Whatever. There was that. And, I mean, also, let's just, I mean, not give a free pass to the script for saying, like, we're going to tell a story about Mm -hmm. a woman who's dying and going on one last trip to whatever. Because, really, come on. Is this, this, you know, I mean, this is in terms of endearment or something like that. (laughs) You know, I mean, do we do movies like that still? (laughs) <laughs> we shouldn't be, especially not movies involving aliens, you know? Yeah. It seemed like an odd choice to try to give it dramatic weight. Um, and the I will say as a special note that I'm not just going to fault the performance, but uh, the role of the boyfriend, and keep in mind I've only seen the 30 minutes, mm-hmm. he he should have been medicated in some way because his emotions <laughs> go all over. The, and the, But the thing is, it's the way it's written. Yeah. Like he's... He's driving, and suddenly he's, he, he's enraged about how they're driving or where they're driving to. And then, you know, like two seconds later, he's in love with her again, and then he's mad at her because the car broke or something. It's like, right. what? Yeah, I mean, they're, like, trying to convey the idea that basically his world is falling apart, too, because the love of his life is dying, and he can't stand to, to live without her. So he's basically, you know, trying to set it up so that he crashes his Jeep and they both die together, you know, kind of thing. Not that yeah. he's consciously aware of that or anything, but you would never pick up on that 
based on the way that it plays out, aside from the fact that they explicitly tell you in the dialogue, <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. <sighs> yes. And what a moving speech to be written about how he sent Valentines to himself. I really <laughs> felt for the character in that moment. That didn't make any sense to me. I don't understand. I don't know. There was a lot about this movie that I didn't understand. You didn't see it, but there is this one amazing moment, and I don't even know the context exactly, but that, that alien suit, which is on the, on the front of the, the box and everything, right? Yeah, the, the pseudo-Gundam. Right. It looks like kind of like straight up something out of the 80s, you know, like Robot Man from the 80s, something yeah. out of like Power Rangers, you know, oh, yeah. like the yeah. Power Rangers villain of the week kind of suit. And yeah. it's supposed to be some sort of containment suit for these aliens because they're like vapors, but then they can take like basically, you know, a, um, a humanoid form by being inside this suit. But there's one moment where like this thing's walking around and people are freaking out and and the whole thing is it's supposed to be you're supposed to think it's an alien and at one point like is running around the base or whatever and then i could be getting some of this wrong i'm probably getting most (laughs) of this wrong but you know it goes around a corner or something and they close the door spoilers and then (laughs) the the alien robotic thing takes off its mask and inside is william shatner what yeah, I don't even know what he was doing, honestly. You know, at that point, I had kind of checked out of the movie, I, I have to admit, right? <laughs> but yeah, it's a weird movie. It's a weird movie, to say the least. And it's a bad movie, to say the least. It's a very yeah. bad movie. Um, and I think a lot of that had to do with the writing. Um, you know, I know that it was based on a story by Shatner. You know, Shatner came up with this. I, I remember him talking about how this was kind of like a passion project with him. And I guess, you know, we're, we're making fun of like the idea of him telling a story about this guy and the love of his life dying and him not being able to deal with it. But I remember at the time and even at the oh. end of the movie, it says for Noreen, it came from a very personal place for Shatner. He was dealing with the fact that his wife just died, yeah. you know? I forgot about that. Yeah, which, you know, bringing that up now kind of makes me feel like a terrible person for completely bashing it. But that doesn't change the fact that this movie is terrible. Okay? Yeah, you you can't use that as a get-out-of-jail-free. I mean, it's you you can respect where it came from while at the same time saying, you know, it, it didn't turn out well. Right. And I mean, that's obviously an event which had a profound impact on Shatner's life. And he has, like, manifested his his feelings about that in very, uh, like, good ways in his art. You know, I mean, you look at his his album, uh, Has Been, and he's got, you know, like, one song. It's not even a song. It's basically just a spoken word piece where he's talking about, you know, losing his his wife. And it's, you know, very profound and and effective and everything like that. You know, setting it here in in these, in in this type of, you know, scenario involving aliens and it's not appropriate, I guess you could say. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. I I track. Yeah. Yeah. So, yes, Groom Lake. Not a very good movie. You know, the the writing is not good. The acting is not good. The direction is not good. It's all really, really bad. Yep. The only person who I think, you know, was decent in it was Amy Hacker. I, I felt really bad for her because she really was, like, 
acting she was trying. her heart out in this she movie. Was. And there's just nothing she could do about it. You know, it's just it just sucked too much. But uh, you know what? Let, let's turn that into a positive and say, at the very least, you can tell with her that she was, uh, you know, didn't consider any project beneath her her best effort. And that's so true. she just really gave it her all. And that's that's a positive thing because that speaks well of somebody. Yeah, I wonder, because I, I'm not exactly familiar with her career. Like, I, I know her, I guess, first from Dollhouse and then from uh, Cabin in the Woods. And I know that she was on, like, Angel and stuff. But I don't know exactly where this falls in her career, you know? I, I'm guessing it was, like, in the middle of it, Angel, but I'm not positive. Yeah, 2002? Isn't yeah. that when this came out? Yeah. yeah, that's that's right around Angel because Buffy was late '90s and Angel came about and had a pretty solid run. Yeah, it was um, like five or six years, right? Yeah, but didn't it start around '90? Yeah, but this this would have been right around there. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, also to be fair, I mean, I'm I'm not going to lie to you. If William Shatner comes to me and says, "I'm directing a movie. Do you want to be in it?" Oh. I'm not going to read that script. I'm going to no. be like, yes, yes, where, when, tell me. I'll quit, Angel. You know, who cares? Yeah. Screw Joss Whedon. You know? Yeah. The chance to be directed by William Shatner? Are you kidding me? I, I completely agree with you. He, he could have, yeah, be one of the crazy people in the town they drive through. All right. Yeah. Sold. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So, yeah. Not the best movie in the world. Probably not the most indicative of Maurice Hurley's work. Uh, but yep. let's take a look at uh, some of his TV stuff. You know, Miami Vice here. Yeah. Now, you were a Miami Vice fan in the past? Well, uh, it wasn't my number one show. But, I mean, how can you grow up in the 80s without Miami? I mean, Miami Vice was a cultural force. It changed yeah. the fashion that everybody wore. It changed, you know, what people you know said to each other. Um, you know, it was really a cultural touchstone. And that theme song, I mean, everybody, I mean, I'm half convinced that people after a time just tuned in to, you know, get the theme song fix because can, that was a great theme song. Can, can you tell me this? Like, is the, you know, the, the, the Peter Gabriel song, that's not the theme song, right? No, no. It's a Jan Hammer. Right. Jan did Hammer song. did the theme song and the Peter Gabriel thing is just... It was like in the first episode or something. Yeah, what uh, what Miami one of the things Miami Vice did and is still I think uh, noted for is that it w- it was trying really hard back then in the days before you know sixteen by nine and shooting on you know shooting with like film level cinematography and stuff like that. It was really trying to break the mold in terms of what you could do uh, with a TV show visually. And it's very much informed by the rise of the music video because there are so many sequences in the episodes where it's literally just pure music video. Like, it's just visual language with a soundtrack and the dialogue is completely secondary. And it worked really, really well. There, there are a number of episodes. Um, the ones that Mann directed, uh, of course, everybody knew because they always had very distinct moments or uh, action scenes that were for the time it was the best you were going to get on television in terms of what they, what they were trying to achieve and the the two episodes that I watched were called Golden Triangle and Golden Triangle Part 2 Hurley co-wrote both of them 
and uh, something I, I always forget, like, you know, in about six months, I'll forget this again, but Edward James Olmos was in the show. Yeah. And he's their boss. And I was like, oh, that's right. He's in it. And Golden Triangle actually winds up being very much focused on him. Oh, that's cool. Because uh, an old enemy from his past, when he was a DEA agent in Thailand, winds up, he finds out he's in Miami. And he suspects that he has uh, his wife that he was married to back in Thailand held hostage. And she's played by Joan Chen, who was later in Twin Peaks. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, so, but it very much focuses on, on Olmos. And what's great about it is he actually has, uh, especially for the time, a pretty killer fight scene. Really? Where he, yeah, he, he gets into like this Thai fight with this guy who is a member of General Lao Lee's uh, enforcer army. And he actually has like this back alley you know, martial arts fight. It's like, and he's in the awesome thin tie suit and everything with his dress shoes. And he still kicks the guy's ass. It's just like, yes. Yeah. Um, so, it, you know, it's, um, I think I sent you a note after I finished it saying that I both miss and don't miss 1980s television. Mm-hmm. There were moments where watching it, it, it has a pretty good, uh, feel like the the dialogue feels good and fresh and then there are other moments where i can't tell whether it's the director cutting too early or whether it was a script problem they couldn't overcome but it suddenly jumps and you're like wait they're wait what are they worried about now like it it does (laughs) skip like that but there are still some really good um dialogue sequences in it and there's even a uh prostitute character that helps them in the first half in the in the first episode who's actually a pretty, you can tell that they're getting into uh, more humanized, uh, you know, portrayals of what would normally be villain characters. Mm -hmm. Like she's got a heart and a motivation that wouldn't have been there 10 years previous in television. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, like Miami Vice, I've never actually seen the, the, show i've seen the movie and it's one of those things where like yeah like you're saying i remember it even though i was a little kid i remember the white suits being a big deal and all that oh, stuff yeah. and it's one of those things where it seems i think probably because of you know i like any sort of cultural um icons or 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 things like that it it almost takes on sort of like a a comical nature when people are thinking about it you know yeah you it, it becomes a joke, even sure. though the thing itself may not be a joke, may not even be, you know, bad. And this is one of those where, you know, just hearing about it and remembering, you know, what it was, it, I always thought of it as a joke until, you know, I started becoming more familiar with, say, Michael Mann and stuff like that. Right. And I started seeing his movies and I started hearing people who, you know, I, I really respected and everything like that start saying like Miami Vice is no joke. Miami Vice is a really good show. You know, Michael Mann was bringing it and even though it does have like the music video thing and all this stuff which many people frown upon, there's no reason why they should frown upon it. And right. you know, Michael Mann is just like screw you guys. I'm making this show and I'm making it, you know, with all my heart and it's going to be good. You know, and if you don't see yeah. that, if you can't see past the 
more iconic things that people tend to to latch on to without looking at what's going on like thematically and stuff like that, then you know that's your problem. Yeah. So so I I think that that's that's pretty interesting, and because of that, I've always wanted to see it. And you know the fact that like Edward James almost is in it and everything is really cool. You know, here's an interesting bit which I do remember. You know, when they were making the new movie, Michael Mann directed the movie himself, of mm-hmm. course, and. It's not a sequel or anything like that. It is a remake of the show, you know, an adaptation mm-hmm. of the show. So so you've got the characters of, like, Crockett and Tubbs and all that stuff. But the character that Edward James Olmos plays, he was like, yeah, screw it. Hey, Edward James Olmos, you want to just be in this movie as the same guy? Because, I mean, come on. You know, who cares? You're the yeah. best. We all Why know not? it. Yeah. And Olmos was like, yeah, I can't. <laughs> so, so they got... Um, Another guy, that guy, uh, um, I forget his name, but he's in everything. He's one of those okay. guys who's in everything. You know? Yeah, yeah. He's yeah. the guy who, uh, he, he played, he's the, the jazz musician guy in Collateral. Oh, that guy. Yeah. Oh, he's awesome. Yeah, he is awesome. Oh. Yeah, not I, as yeah. awesome as Edward James almost, but you know what can you well, do? Well, I mean, who really is? Yeah, nobody. Nobody. But, well, the, the thing is, though, the, the thing that ties together is, for, for me, like, if you look at Manhunter... Yeah. And you look at Miami Vice, he's working out the same sort of film language in both mm-hmm. of them. I've always maintained that Manhunter is like a, a big screen, was a big screen way for him to try to work out these ideas. Whereas Miami Vice was sort of like a, a fluid thing. And, you know, it has, you know, there are bad episodes. Um, it takes a decidedly bizarre turn by the end. Doesn't, like isn't it, that another show that has aliens in it? I, I know the the if I remember correctly, at the end of the fourth season, uh, Crockett gets injured while undercover that affects his brain. So he thinks he is his cover character and he winds up having a showdown with Tubbs. That, and it winds up being like a three part episode. It's like a two part at the end of the fourth season. And then the third part is at the beginning of the fifth season or something like that. But by then, the steam had really left the show. It, it had lost a lot of momentum. But, okay, but they did do an alien episode of this show. Oh, I'm sure that they did. I it's, can't recall it. It's called Missing Hours. I'm just looking it up now because it, it involves aliens, hallucinations, surrealism, um, mind control, it looks like, um, acid trips, government moving, mind-altering drugs. So, yeah, I mean... Yeah, they did. They did get into aliens at one point. I don't know if they were straight up aliens, but they at least touched on the idea, which makes well, me happy. You know, yeah, I mean, every the 80s, show the, should, spa- right? the space program was still around in the eighties. We were all still <laughs> thinking about aliens. Yeah, why not? Right? Yeah, we were still trying to get to space, so yeah. we were, we were working it out of our uh, collective subconscious or something like that. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, uh, I. I do want to note, though, that if I read the app correctly, by the time this episode airs, uh, it may be gone from Netflix, if I read the, the date right. What? Yeah, so <sighs> I hope not, but if it's not, if you go to Netflix and you say, you know what, I want to cast some uh, good old Crockett and Tubbs action, and it's not there, we didn't lie to you. <sighs> uh, it is there as we're recording it. But uh, I think on the app it said uh, through seven fifteen twenty fifteen or something like that. Mm, 
I got a binge watch tonight then, I guess. Well, right. it is on Amazon for rental. So, oh, all right. But, okay. Well, at least there's that. Yeah. Man. Oh, well. So, yeah, I mean, this is definitely a show that I want to see. Michael Mann, yeah, he's got, I mean, you were talking about Manhunter. Like, that movie is awesome. It is. Um, if you if you haven't seen Manhunter, if, you, if you're a Hannibal fan, you know, and you yep. like uh, Silence of the Lambs or whatever, and if you've seen Red Dragon and yeah. you thought it was terrible, or if you've seen Red Dragon and you thought it was good, watch Manhunter and you'll realize that you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Because um, Manhunter is awesome. It's uh, basically yeah. the first film in the series. I always yeah. like to look at it as a trilogy, even though there's two other movies. We can ignore the two other movies. It's a trilogy. Manhunter, Silence mm-hmm. of the Lambs, and Hannibal. Each of yeah. them very different movies. Each of them you know, with very different styles, even different genres to some extent. Yeah. And you know, very cool... Uh, and and uh, thought provoking and everything, Red Dragon just is a remake of Manhunter, and yeah. uh, it just tries to straight up um, be like yeah. like Silence of the Lambs, but you know telling the story of Manhunter, well, and it doesn't work. But Manhunter was actually titled Red Dragon, yeah. until uh, Year of the Dragon flopped, and De Laurentiis got skittish about the title and decided to change it to Manhunter because they didn't want the stigma of Year of the Dragon to follow them. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Here's, here's one more uh, interesting little fact. Um, Michael Mann's longtime uh, cinematographer is Dante Spinati and they worked together for years and years and years and they worked together on uh, Manhunter. Well, like a good 20 years later, both of them moving on with their careers and everything like that. And, you know, Red Dragon comes up. And at this point in time, uh, Dante Spinati is working uh, rather regularly with uh, Brett Ratner. So he's Brett Ratner's cinematographer. Brett Ratner gets the gig doing Red Dragon, so he goes back to his normal cinematographer, Dante Spinati. So both... Manhunter and Red Dragon are shot by the same cinematographer. Oh, Dante really? Spinati. Yeah, that's and wild. It, it's interesting to see, like, compositionally, they're they're very similar, but like the lighting schemes are very different. I mean, it's very strange just huh. to kind of see, you know, the similarities and the differences, you well, know, and, and what twenty years, you know, uh, does in terms of changing someone's style and working with another director and everything like that. I I, I will say just as a quick note because. Just talking about Manhunter, I remember the first time I ever saw it. Uh, it was on video was with some friends. We were on vacation somewhere, I think. And I remember that the moment that completely blew me, and this, this ties into the whole Miami Vice, uh, you know, sort of like uh, uh, working out, you know, the visual language as a, a music video sort of thing. But the ending of it is basically choreographed to Inagata Davida. Yes, it is. And I was a young lad, and it was the first time I ever heard the song Inagata Davida. Yeah. And that scene where uh, William Peterson comes crashing through the plate glass window. Yeah. And the drum solo was like, what? What? Like, I seriously think that was one of those key moments where you're you're very young and you you're watching a film and it actually does something that blows your mind. You're like, 
what just happened right now? For sure. I mean, that, yeah. that ending, I mean, they're one of the best, you know, uses of music I've ever seen in a movie. Oh, it's, yeah. it's amazing, you know? Oh, God, yeah. That movie's so good. Michael Mann, yeah, he's great. Um, yep. For sure. So, yeah, and, you know, what what did you think about the writing then, since, you know, we're talking about Hurley and everything, and this is one of, he wrote, like, six episodes of the show, and this is kind of, like, I think, kind of his uh, his centerpiece as far as Miami Vice yeah. is concerned. Uh, the second half of the episode is much stronger. Um, it's co-written by Michael Mann, and uh, he co-wrote it with somebody else uh, for the first half. Uh, but it's good. It's very... It's very good in the sense that it takes the time to set up the, the plot, and it's actually fairly convoluted but easy to follow, which for 80s television is an achievement in and of itself because it totally shifts gears by the end of the first hour. Like, it starts with them just busting a, uh, a prostitution ring and then going... And because of that, getting involved with some guys who mistake them for actual pimps who get them to uh, basically they manipulate them so that they can knock over the safety deposit boxes that are in the the basement of the hotel uh, where they're working undercover. And then the guys get killed because they've been double crossed because they didn't know what they were stealing which then leads to the discovery that the papers they were stealing were immigration documents for Edward James Olmos's old foe to bring people over to start cutting heroin in Miami. And it's like, it, so, I mean, think about in an hour, it goes to that many different places, and it's, it's, that's pretty impressive. Like, that, that's a pretty complex plot line. Yeah, uh, I, for, I love it. I know. love it when TV shows and movies do that. You know, that kind of thing that you see in, like, L.A. Confidential or Watchmen, where yeah. it's like this thing which seems like it's a really simple thing, and then all of a sudden it involves like the end of the world or whatever, you know? Yeah. And you're looking at it from like the perspective of two cops, you know? And I, I love it. I love it when, when movies and TV shows do that. That sounds yeah. really cool. Uh, yeah. But then the second half is a very straightforward, you know, Edward James almost going after the bad guy, um, and everybody you know, giving their support and just on this dogged pursuit. And then by the end of the episode, it like you, you really, you get taken on the, the, you know, a tour of these characters and it's a first season uh, arc. And so you wind up, I, I think that this is one of those ones that really helped establish the characters. You really feel like you can start the whole show just from these two and you know, everybody perfectly well and can keep moving forward. You don't awesome. need the shows that come beforehand. That's cool. Well, that'll be yeah. good because that'll knock off like 12 episodes in my uh, <laughs> binge watch that I need to do in the next day. So. <laughs> Perfect. Because cool. there's like 200 episodes of that show, right? <laughs> uh, yeah. It was on for five years. Yeah. Five years, something like that. Yeah. So 100 something episodes. Yeah. yeah. Enough. Enough. More than there are hours in the day between now and when it <laughs> leaves Netflix. So. Set it up on three televisions and watch them simultaneously. That's good. That's good. Yeah, I'll, I'll have to try that. Um. <laughs> the Elvis way. <laughs> so, any any other thoughts on on Miami Vice or Hurley's work? I mean, like, what what do you think uh, you're seeing here that maybe was missing in the proposal and and Groom Lake? Honestly, I think that 
uh, he probably worked better as a team than solo. And that's not a knock. Some people are better at punching up a script or getting the right dialogue in place and not necessarily putting the structure in place or vice versa. So it's, I mean, television really seems like just his natural element. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting. I wish we could have done more of that, but it just, it, you know, practically it just didn't really make oh, yeah. much sense. And how are we to know? Cause we haven't seen this stuff. Right. So it's, it's discovery for us as, as well as everyone else. That's right. Although, I, I don't know, hopefully most people won't discover Groom Lake, but no, go see it. I mean, make up your own opinion, you know? I mean, I, you know, I mean, I don't know. I, that's kind of a thing, you know, I, if someone were to tell me, like, Groom Lake was terrible, like, if you were to come out and say everything that you said about Groom Lake or everything that I said about Groom Lake, I'd still be like, well, I don't really care what you have to say, I'm still watching it because it's directed by William Shatner, you know? Here, Not that here, you're wrong. I just need to know for myself. Here's a question for you. Yeah. I, because my sliding scale of value is, like, at the upper end, you have, like, say, just picking one at random, Godfather Part Two. Okay. And then at the bottom end of the scale, you have something like uh, The Room or Miami Connection. Mm-hmm. I Where thought Miami Connection was supposed to be good, no? No, no. Oh, okay. No, I thought it was supposed to be no, good. I always, no. No, whatever. No, there's a reason Rift Tracks is going after it. Okay, all right, fair enough, um, fair enough. <laughs> so on that scale, where are you going to put Groom Lake? Are you going to put it down below? Like, you've seen The Room, right? I haven't. I'm aware uh, of it. Yeah, okay. We're, we're batting a thousand. <laughs> Yet again, another movie you haven't seen. But to be fair, <laughs> like, if I wait, like, a week or so like they play <laughs> and like they literally play yeah. it once at least once every three months at the music box usually with tommy wiseau in attendance so oh. certainly there are opportunities for me to see that movie i was actually talking to my coworker about the room she was talking about how well she went to one of these screenings and she brought her friends with and you know it's it is what it is everyone knows what it is it's basically like the new you know rocky horror picture yeah. show kind of thing and yeah. people bring props and everything like that. And it's basically just like yep. crazy and, and everything. And she was talking about how she, um, she, she took her friends to see it. And her one friend apparently did not realize what the deal was. So she's sitting in this theater <laughs> filled with rowdy, drunk people in the middle of Wrigleyville, which if you know anything about Wrigleyville, okay, it's a block away from, from Wrigley Field where the Cubs play. That tells you everything you need to know. So it's all a bunch of, you know, like drunk frat boys yelling at the screen, throwing spoons at the screen, because apparently that's a thing. It is. <laughs> Once you see it, you'll understand. And, and, and you know, my friend's uh, friend is just sitting there, like, with her arms folded, like, looking at, you know, people sitting next to her, like, shut up, I'm trying to watch the movie. <laughs> I think it was a lost awesome. cause. <laughs> yeah. But what oh, can you do? That's brilliant. <laughs> so where would I put it in terms of that, knowing that that's what it is? It's definitely down there. You know, I mean, yeah. is it Manos Hands of Fate bad? <laughs> no, Peaceful. but I mean, it's certainly something which, you know, Mystery Science Theater 3000 could easily tackle, you know, without yeah. much effort. Oh, maybe we should recommend this to Rift Tracks. They must know, right? 
I wonder, although I wonder if given what you said about this being sort of a, uh, a Shatner personal project, if he would never in a million years give up the rights to it to do that. That could be. Then, then again, he's also a very savvy businessman, you know. That is true. So That is true. If there's a deal know. to be had. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, any final thoughts on Hurley and his work on either Groom Lake or Miami Vice? I say this with all due respect, he should have stuck with television. I mean, I can see that, you know, for sure. And uh, I, I'm very intrigued by by Miami Vice and his work on it, as well as his work on, like, Equalizer and all that stuff. I'd love to watch his, his original TV show, but as it stands, all of these things are kind of unavailable. It got lost in that weird time period. and the, Well, I mean, I guess it's not that small of a time period. It's pretty much everything pre, like, 2000 is really hit or miss, unless it's Star Trek, you know? Yeah. Chances are it's going to be hard hard to find. So, Too true. Well, what can you do? But Groom Lake is a mess. It it really is. It's the worst movie I've seen in a very long time. <laughs> so, oh well. All right. Uh, before we go, there was one last little bit of news which we should probably talk about, and that's the fact that Star Trek Beyond has a composer. Yes. And that composer is Michael Giacchino. Yay! Who, of course, did the music for Star Trek 09 and Star Trek Into Darkness, as well as a ton of other uh, movies, uh, most of which came out this year. So we also have, we just discovered right now as we speak, breaking news, straight hot off the IMDb presses. Uh, (laughs) I'm building this up like it's something really big, and no one's going to care except for probably (laughs) me. <laughs> but this is what I've been waiting for. There there are new editors on uh Star Trek Beyond and they are Dylan Highsmith and Kelly Matsumoto. Both are people who have worked with Justin Lin in the past. Uh but they both came from the Fast and Furious franchise. Uh Kelly Matsumoto uh a little earlier than than Dylan Highsmith. Matsumoto edited Fast and Furious Tokyo Drift, and then Fast Five and Furious Six, and, and in addition to other things, but those were the things that she did with Lynn. Dylan Highsmith did Furious Six and then Furious Seven, which is not um, uh, Lynn's movie, but he also did the pilot for Scorpion, which Lynn directed. So so he's got the two of them. Other works that these people have done, um, not much in terms of Dylan Highsmith. Uh, Kelly Matsumoto uh, has a a, a bit of a larger filmography, having done The Mummy Returns, Van Helsing, uh, The Mummy, Tomb of the Dragon Emperor, uh, Smother, and G.I. Joe, The Rise of Cobra. Interesting. I will ignore the Van Helsing credit. I like Van Helsing. I don't, um, but I, you know, the, the fact that, uh, the editors are coming over now, see people, but see people could fixate on that and be like, Oh, they're from the furious franchise. I knew it. It's going to be another blah, blah, blah. No, it's very important for a director to have. And I think you would agree, uh, an editor that they can speak in shorthand with that, you know, they can walk in and and they can just say, okay, this is how I want it to break down. And they don't have to give, you know, 
extremely explicit instructions to the editor. The editor knows how to get the, the tone and, and work with what the director brings them. And I, I think that coming from the, the Fast franchise is a good thing in this case. Yeah, that's absolutely 100% correct. You know, I mean, I, I am personally of the opinion that uh, the, the relationship between director and editor is one of the most important in terms of making a movie. Um, the editors, they kind of get lost in the shuffle a lot of the times. But, you know, yeah, I mean, you see people, I mean, look at Steven Spielberg. He's worked with the same editor, Michael Kahn, for like his entire career, you know. Yeah. And there's a reason for that. And, uh, you know, you see it elsewhere, too. And, and here, here we're seeing, you know, the same, the same thing with Justin Lin, which I think is great. Uh, and it's, it just makes sense. I mean, this is like one of the things that I always bring up when people talk about Richard Marquand being a puppet for Return of the Jedi, you know? And they're like, he was just, you know, whatever. And it's like, that may be true, that may not be true. But I'm thinking that it's not nearly as true as people think it is. Because he had his own cinematographer and his own editor working on that movie. That, to me, says that at the very least, at some point in that process, it was Richard Marquand's movie done by Richard Marquand's team, you know? And he even got to... uh, uh He's the one that picked uh, Admiral Akbar. Really? Yep. He's the one that decided Ad- Admiral Akbar was going to be the Admiral Akbar we all know and love. That's excellent. See, right there, yeah. right there. And he's in the movie. He has he his all, own action yep. figure. Yeah, and he also he's also the one that came up with uh, Leia's uh, disguise character, Boosh, the bounty hunter. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, so yeah. I mean, it is important. I mean, you see it with J.J. You know, he's worked with Mary Jo Markey and Marianne Brandon, his, his editors, who, who edited both 09 and Into Darkness. Uh, I think only one of them edited uh, um, Super 8, but they're both working with him now on Star Wars, and they worked on Alias with him and everything. So, yeah, it's, it's very important. But now with this, what this means is, in terms of like the above the line crew members, like the ones who you know sort of like really make up like the the team, the 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 yeah. the senior officers, if you will, you know the command crew. It's yeah. like we we have the full command crew now for Star Trek Beyond. So yeah. um, if if you don't mind, just going to read off these names and you please. Know. All right, director Justin Lin, writers Doug Young and and Simon Pegg. Producers, J.J. Abrams, Brian Burke, and Roberto Orsi. Music, Michael Giacchino. Cinematography, Stephen F. Winden. Production design, Scott Chambliss, who did the last two movies. Mm -hmm. And the editors, Dylan Highsmith and Kelly Matsumoto. So there you go. There's your team. This is like this is like when they announced like the starting lineup for for the All-Star game a couple days ago, you know? Although way yeah. more exciting. Yes, it is way more <laughs> exciting. I agree. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm, I'm happy about this. This makes me very happy. I don't know. I like knowing these things. So, well, there I, you go. You know, th- these people are key to making the movie work. I mean, you know, the actors go so far, but these are the people that are, you know, they're putting the, the vision together. Yeah, I am very happy that they have basically the team that put together the Fast and the Furious franchise because those movies are awesome. So, exciting stuff. Cool. All right. Well, it's been fun talking about 
Groom Lake and Miami Vice and all the rest of it today. But that's only one of the things we've been talking about here on Trek FM this week. So here's a look at what you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, Standard Orbit. It, it wasn't so much, you know, some down and dirty action, you know, and, and stuff. It's more like Spock is in heaven and it's all good until he comes back, you know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> I think that's pretty, though, I think those are the lyrics. Earl Grey. We divide the ship into one of two ways. Port goes to port. <laughs> I better not see any starboard guys on the starboard phaser target practice. You guys know which side of the ship you're on. The orb. Also, the original title of this episode was A Matter of Breeding, which when we talk about things feeling TNG-ish, that could have been a Riker episode. <laughs> <laughs> the Ready Room. It's about people and feelings and emotions. It's about philosophy. It's about the future. It's about hope. It's about glory. It's about intellectual promise. That's what Axanar is about. It is not a story about pew, pew, pew. I promise you that. To the journey! I can just hear the Earl Grey people screaming, Measure of a man! Measure of a man! (laughs) And you know what I would say to that? Death wish! Death wish! Warp 5. I remember watching Broken Bow when Enterprise first debuted when I was in high school. I remember revisiting it now in full, and I had forgotten the fact that Future Guy had actually played an integral role from the get-go with Silic and the Sulaban, which we'll talk about later in the show. Commentary, Trek stars. I think part of it, you know, which is probably good, is that he's probably not familiar with what happened, you know, in, in season one of Next Gen, aside from hearing stories here and there. So he's just like, whatever, I'm just going to get the story. The 602 Club. I think he's very much recreating that THX feel. And you may di- you may disagree with it. You may not think it's, you know, it's great, but it's on purpose. He, he wants that world to be that way. Let me just say, conceptually, I agree with that. In terms of execution, that's where I think he failed. Literary Treks. It's amazing to me, as I reread these stories, how much of it, I just kind of think of as Deep Space Nine these days, even though it wasn't part of Deep Space Nine, (laughs) you know, the the actual series. Axanar, the official podcast. It is the spirit of TOS that matters that's being captured, but it doesn't necessarily have to be the aesthetic. The aesthetic was 1966 to 1969 that had its moment, it had its time, and there's a certain amount of charm still to that. But it doesn't allow you to push the narrative forward because that type of aesthetic holds creativity back, in my opinion. Women at Warp. My absolute favorite thing about this episode is that this is a love potion only if it's between a man and a woman. They make it explicitly clear that if you touch two men or two women, they just become really good friends. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out these shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button, and that helps us out greatly and makes it easier for other listeners to find the show as they search iTunes. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website and grab the RSS link as well. 
Another way that you can help us out by keeping all of our shows coming to you each week is to become a patron of the network on Patreon. If you visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm, you'll find our current goals and different milestone contribution levels along with all the great perks we have for you. These perks include early access to content, exclusive content, producer credits, seats on our content development team, and more. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trek.fm. If you want to contact us, you can fill out the form on trek.fm slash contact, or you can leave us a voicemail. Just go to uh, speakpipe.com slash trek.fm, or you can also find a link on uh, the sidebar of our show page. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at TrekFM as a network, or you can also find the network on Facebook at facebook.com slash TrekFM, where you'll also find the Babel Conference. Uh, just type the Babel Conference, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook or go to our website at trek.fm and click the discussion tab on the menu bar. And, and leave us uh, a review on iTunes, if you don't mind, because, yes. uh, you know, it makes us happy. And also, it, it helps uh, push the the show up in the iTunes uh, nebulous ratings thing, which no one knows exactly how it works, but <laughs> whatever thing. So yeah, give us a review, write a few words, we'll read them on the air, even yes, if they're mean. Especially if they're mean. Especially, I'm waiting for one of those. Listen to my charge off voice if it's mean. <laughs> Yes. John, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Kessel Junkie, and you can also find me on a show that I co-host with my pal Craig called Words with Nerds, uh, which is on iTunes and Stitcher and all the others. And, uh, yeah, that's where you can find me. Yeah, leave a review for that one as well. Please. leave. A, yeah, leave a review for both of these. Yeah. You can find me right here on Trek FM doing Standard Orbit with uh, Drew. And you can find me on my own website, CommentaryTrackStars.com, doing Commentary Track Stars Off Topic and Commentary Track Star Babies. And you can find me on Twitter at Mumbles3K, and you can find the show on Twitter at ComTrackStars, or you can email us at ComTrackStars at gmail.com. All right, before we go, we'd like to ask everyone to please support our sponsor who helps us bring commentary, Trek Stars, and all of our shows to you each week. And our sponsor for this show is Audible.com. Audible is a great way for you to read all of the books you've always wanted to read but never thought you'd have the time for. you have a book for us this week? I do. Uh, in keeping with the theme of Groom Lake, uh, I've selected... The Alien Abduction Files, The Most Startling Cases of Human-Alien Contact Ever Reported, written by Kathleen Martin and Denise Stoner. It's narrated by Laurel Merlington. Why would two women separated by thousands of miles share a common thread involving alien abduction? Both cases are supported by multiple witnesses and have substantial evidence. Both women experienced missing time while driving with a companion and were later taken from their homes. Both have been unwilling participants in ongoing experimental procedures that appear to follow family genetic lines. Wow. That sounds like every episode of The X-Files rolled into one. Just about. Just about. I am probably 
you know, I will listen to this because how does one have missing time while driving with a companion? I'm going <laughs> to no, cast... it happened. It happened in the X Files. It happened in the very first episode. See, yeah, they they have the missing time, and then he's like, oh, and he takes like a a, a spray paint bottle out of out of his trunk and spray paints a big X on the on the pavement, and then he's like, all right, let's go. And I was so hoping that that would happen like every week. And she's just like, Mulder, you can't go spray painting everything. They call that vandalism. <laughs> but see, then it would have gone down the road of uh, the Invisible Man. And yes. just ended, ended with him like doing the, the spray paint mark and the, like the womp womp and freeze frame. <laughs> but X-Files could have pulled that off, though. You got Probably. Admit. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, you, you can get this book for free. Since you listen to our show, as a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice along with the 30-day trial to see just how great Audible is. Just go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up today. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash trekfm, and we thank Audible for supporting Commentary, Trek Stars, and the network. You know, I'm I'm currently listening to a book on audible.com. Um, the name of that book is uh, Star Wars Dark Disciple. Ah, excellent choice. I'm about halfway through it, yeah. and uh, I'll let you know next week whether or not uh, it's worthy of a free um, purchase. Excellent. All yeah. right. Yeah. I, I, I know where my review is, but uh, I, I, I look forward to hearing yours. Yeah, I look forward to giving it. All right. All right. Well, um, it's... Currently 10.22 p.m. on Monday night, which means I have approximately 26 <laughs> hours to watch uh, like 152 episodes of Miami Vice. So I'm thinking I should probably go now. Go to. Get thee to a television. All right. We'll be back next week to recap our look at Maurice Hurley's career in the movies. <laughs>